Welcome to the Earwig Review, episode 12. Okay, today we're going to read our six posts as usual and I'm going to read from a book I finished reading this morning by the author Philip Roth. And there was a couple excerpts that I picked out that I wanted to read here on the show, which is something we haven't done before. Usually every week read some prose that I'm working on, but I wanted to um, read these things. I think um, you'll understand why when we get there. Before I get into the posts, the thing that's coming up here is on the website www.joshuahillelbarski.com, J O S H U A H I L L E L B A R S K Y.com. I'm taking all of those short stories on the bottom that are there and then combining them down into one book that will be called Herman's Jail and Other Stories and that's a long time coming uh, figuring out how to edit those properly um, and how basically I wanted to finish that project has been work in progress for a little while but Um, as I've been slowly editing them in audio form, as I've been talking about in the show here, I'm starting to see a lot more clearly how, um, how to combine them all and the use of combining them all. It's, I have this feeling that, um, them in sequence, those five stories in sequence is, um, is a good thing they were all kind of written with one another in mind and it does seem like the things I've been writing after Herman's Jail feel like um, a different world and what I think that may be is those five stories in in my mind take place in the city I'm from, Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Um, They happen to, they all exist there and are about, um, in more or less a lot of ways, uh, being a young person. Um, Sometimes being a, a kid, And I think some of the other stories are looking at adulthood through the, through that point of view. Um, There's a genre story about um, a detective story and very much feels like it's not inside of what, it's not realistic in the real world. It's in the world of genre story. something that I think 
obviously I became familiar with when I was young, reading comic books, watching movies, etc. Um, same with the Lotus Pond Earth is a Western that not only has a young person in it, but it has this kind of, you know, genre-like characteristic that feels to me aligned with, with that whole world. So it's, you know, kind of more or less a holistic thing. Um, so that's that's what I'm working towards. Forming them into audiobooks when I get those done, usually that counts as a really good edit. Uh, and this week I spent a lot of good time um, going back and forth between recording the stories out loud and then doing a paper edit that's very much informed by uh, that process, which I would very much recommend. Something I didn't always do, um, but as a way of recording the story out loud, reading the story out loud and recording it is a been a very helpful way of um, getting to the editing process getting through the editing process in a more efficient and um, and the quality of the edit and and the story in the end I think is it really helps really really seems to so that's been good all around and um, so far it seems like the first three stories are basically done in this new edit and this is by no means the first time I've edited or released any of these stories so I gotta watch out for the perpetual trap of it all um, and then the detective story will be hopefully I'll f do a round of that next week and then perhaps the week after I'll do another round of, of Herman's Jail the last story up there which might even take two weeks it's a bit longer so you know that's where we're at right now and that could all that plan could change as well as it often does so that's definitely been been on my mind quite a bit this week's posts we can basically get right into it began on november 6th this week and let's see these are posts going to post all the way to 691 so getting closer to hitting that 700 mark uh, which is exciting i'm happy about that but it's going to take another year to get to the thousand thousand post mark and uh, that, that'll definitely be a milestone. Something to look forward to for no, it's, it's completely arbitrary. It's just word count greed stuff, which is, can really mess things up. I think when you become obsessed with word count you know, hitting a certain word count every day or knowing your manuscript is so many words and then becoming very precious about, okay, I know it's, you know, 30,000 words or whatever. And then you delete a couple pages and suddenly it's at the 29 mark and suddenly you want to write just to fill that space up. 
and um, it's, I don't know if I'll ever get away from it writing on a computer it's just too readily available as to what page we're on and how many words we've counted but the less I learn to care about those things I think the better off um, will be that's one thing that's very good about the daily posts is that I'm not looking at the word count it's more just that doing it once every day that matters um, and then I can as a long term goal be like okay it'll be great to hit a thousand one day that seems nice but no who gives a shit except for me literally no one cares um, it doesn't help the quality of the writing at all and um, so I'm trying to definitely deprogram my my thoughts out of that that said this Herman's Jail book I compiled everything just to kind of I wanted to see how long it was and it's about 85,000 words um, which is great those five stories together you know that feels like a very substantial piece of writing as a whole um, so you know it's good but sudden now I want to hold on to it I don't want it to be less than that maybe less than 80 would be would be good but again stuff no one cares about except for um, except myself so the other thing to mention before I get into the post um, I've switched off of Substack as a podcast host and I've moved on to a service called rss.com none of this should matter on your end as the audience um, so I hope it all goes seamlessly and whatnot. if it doesn't and something's odd um, we'll get that fixed as soon as possible but uh, hopefully that's all okay and perhaps you'll never know on your end and it'll just come up normally and that'll be and that'll be just fine first post four bags of limestone there's a hard there's a hard drive in a cactus it is extremely hot out and the hard drive has melted to liquid some guy ran head first into the cactus i have no idea why he died instantly from the spike going into his head. He had, he had bad dandruff in that sun. Meanwhile, I'm sitting here playing internet chess and thinking about my own dandruff. I have to buy four bags of limestone from Home Depot this week. I don't know anything about limestone except that it is a rock. I looked up a picture of it online. I quite like it. It looks like a good rock. It looks like a rock that I will be happy to buy four bags of. So, what's going on with this four bags of limestone post? I would say first and foremost, this very much feels like, I, usually I read it and I'm reminded of the week as a whole and for whatever reason this 
week feels like it's been very long. This feels like a lifetime has passed since um, since this post was written. Maybe it was a, an eventful week um, after all. There's a hard drive in a cactus. It is extremely hot out and the hard drive has melted to liquid. Some guy ran head first into the cactus. I have no idea why. He died instantly from the spike going into his head. He had bad dandruff in that sun. Meanwhile, I'm sitting here playing internet chess and thinking about my own dandruff. I have to buy four bags of limestone from Home Depot this week. I don't know anything about limestone except that it is a rock. I looked up a picture of it online. I quite like it. It looks like a good rock. It looks like a rock that I will be happy to buy four bags of. Good. Good. Good enough. There used to be a poster when I was in university in one of my professor's offices. And it said, uh, good enough sucks, was the line. And I, th- I think at the time I used to believe that as a piece of a good piece of advice good enough sucks but I think now it's a dumb piece of advice and good enough is great four bags of limestone crustacean claw a crustacean claw has clamped onto a guy's dick hole. He was swimming in the ocean when it happened. It looks like a crawfish, but it could be some other crustacean. It is inside of his swim trunks. The antenna are poking out from the waist and the tail from the bottom of his shorts. He is screaming bloody murder. He is crying, and no one knows what to do. Someone just yanked his shorts down, and they're trying to get the the crawfish off, but they can't. He might die. I would imagine that would be a relief for him. I suppose that kind of death, while excruciatingly painful, would be fast. But I'm unsure if I would prefer a fast death. I may want to reflect a bit, knowing death was coming. But that is the thing about death, and it should be obvious that it is always coming. In that case, I'll have to reflect on my own, on my death. Not like there is a crustacean vice gripped to my dick hole, more calmly than that. I gave it a shot, and I found that I was screaming with my underpants around my ankles, like there was a crustacean vice gripped to my dick hole I understand that man better now okay let's go through this one again somehow in my as I read this I'm, I'm picturing it but I'm fixated I have something also fixated about uh, talking about the, the podcast server earlier where I 
mentioned that I was m migrating off of Substack and onto this other site called RSS, and I feel um, regretful of talking about the technicalities of the back end of of this whole operation, um, as that it's perhaps boring content <laughs> to talk about that kind of thing, but um, I think the amount of time I've spent looking at all of the different options and figuring out what's the best system to have this thing run, uh, it seemed pertinent, it seemed relevant to um, to mention in the, the intro of the show there. But then I immediately began spinning out about it, and now I'm not focusing on on the show. So it's uh, it does it doesn't matter <laughs> at all. But I think it'll lead to some better, more a more clean kind of uh, thing. So it's fine. Let's see. Crustacean claw has clamped onto a guy's dick hole. That much is clear. He was swimming in the ocean when it happened. It looked like a crawfish, but it could be some other crustacean. It is inside of his swim trunks. The antenna are poking out from the waist, and the and the tail. I'm gonna say and its tail. It is inside of his swim trunks. The antenna are poking out from the waist and the tail from the bottom of his shorts. It's clear enough. He is screaming bloody murder. He is crying and no one knows what to do. Someone just yanked his shorts down and they're trying to get the crawfish off, but they can't. He might die. I would imagine that would be a relief for him. I suppose that kind of death while excruciatingly painful would be fast, but I'm unsure if I would prefer a fast death. I may want to reflect a bit, knowing death was coming. But that is the thing about death. It should be obvious. It is always coming. I'm changing some of the syntax here. In that case, I will have to reflect on my death. Not like there is a crustacean vice gripped to my dick hole. More calmly than that. So that's that's the I think what what worked about this post was the idea that you wouldn't want to miss out on being in that space where you you knew you were going to die and have those kind of end of life thoughts versus uh, an accidental or very quick death where you didn't have to go through that there are two options that said it's it would be why not take it think about it seriously knowing it will happen one day or another in that case I will have to reflect on my death not like there is a crustacean vice grip to my dick hole more calmly than that. I gave it a shot. 
and I found that I was screaming with my underpants around my ankles. In the end, we realized, what's the difference? Like there was a crustacean vice grip to my dick hole. I understand that man better now. Good. I'm happy with that post. And now that I've read it, I want to go back and read Four Bags of Limestone again. It seems like these kind of accidental kind of cartoon deaths are, are we're seeing a pattern there. It's a hard drive in a cactus. It is extremely hot out and the hard drive is melted to liquid. Some guy ran head first into the cactus. I have no idea why. He died instantly from the spike going into his head. He had bad dan—he had bad dandruff in that sun. Meanwhile, I'm sitting here playing internet chess and thinking about my own dandruff. I have to buy four bags of limestone. So there's, there's the split where I lost track of it. The first off, I got it playing some great online chess this week. I want to give a shout out to all the games I'm I'm playing. I got playing against chess user Chesterfield Alberta, user Crazy Flax, Big Matt Ladante, and DY underscore M. So I got one, two, three, four, five opponents right now. One, two, three, four. No, four opponents. Chesterfield, Flax, Big Matt, and DYM. Someone must... Oh, I know why. And Bjorn Slippy. Bjorn Slippy was further down because I'm waiting for his move to go. I knew there was five. So, really playing these online chess games is a welcome distraction in uh, in my day. And uh, mostly I get my ass kicked. Mostly I get my ass kicked. Every once in a while I, I am able to win, but generally the, my opponents have beat me. And um, you can gauge your overall moods a bit of how sore of a loser you are when it happens. And sometimes I don't care and other times I can really feel defeated in life, wondering why my um, center of logic is seems um, like it's not firing as precisely as, as my opponents. Playing internet chess and thinking about my own dandruff. I have to buy four bags of limestone from Home Depot this week. I don't know anything about limestone except that it's a rock. And we, we use that limestone to put under the bricks on the front porch to reroute some of the water because there was some flooding going on in the basement when it rained. So it did rain since then. And there was no issue. So maybe we did a good job. Who knows? So... All I'm noticing so far on November 6th, November 7th, thinking about accidental deaths and trying to consider them 
in some trying to comprehend it all in some meaningful or truly un mundane way Home Depot on November 8th tomorrow I'm looking forward to going to Home Depot to buy limestone it's always good to go to that store I like looking around and thinking about the possibilities there if you are in Home Depot you will see a strange saw and perhaps you will purchase it and bring it home from there I have no idea what you will do with it perhaps you can cut <laughs> from there I have no idea what you will do with it perhaps you can cut your own head off and glue it into your ass I would keep the receipt just in case they're pretty good about returning things I saw a guy walk in there once he had his head glued into his ass he returned a saw and a glue gun and they didn't even ask him any questions he just gave them the receipt and his credit card and they refunded it without any fuss it is like being in a library if you were there surrounded by the books eventually you will pick one up and start reading it even if you were just there to nap or to wait out the cold you can pick up a book and read it i would recommend going to the library when you have it have the chance even if you don't have time you should still go. That's the post called Home Depot. That's the best one of the week so far. This one's good. And this one feels new to me. It feels like it's broken out of some of the more ordinary patterns that um, that I've been after, that I've been using or... or um, these la most of the last few months. One thing is it's written in paragraphs of four lines, whereas most of the time they're in twos, I believe. But looking back, it's actually four bags of limestone is in twos, crustacean claws in three, and Home Depot is in four. So maybe I'll consider that. I'll s try to use this um, groups of four. I like the way that, that the cadence was in that one. Quite straightforward. Um, going to go by the limestone. Being inspired by going into Home Depot. I'm sure everyone can relate thinking about the dangers and the, and the creative possibility perhaps you can cut off your own head and glue it into your ass and despite the danger it's a often a low risk purchase you can return things very easily there as i'm sure you would relate to that as well and then it relates going to home depot to going in the library and I think a lot of um, I do often revert back to kind of the this kind of glamorization or like this 
you know, fetishizing the library and what it is and what it represents. And, um, and I wonder, I mean, it's very straightforward, but to attach those two thoughts so quickly, maybe, I don't know what that is. But I think I also had some DVDs to return to the library. So I was in, I was anticipating having to go to the library. And I wanted to kill two birds with one stone. When I went to Home Depot, I was hoping that my new library holds were going to come in. In the same trip, I could return the DVDs, go to Home Depot, and then spend some time hanging out at the library. Because I wanted to... Uh, be there for a bit this week but uh, I didn't end up going and the reason why is because I stopped in at the used bookstore um, in the week and found a new book for five bucks anyway that was Home Depot let's see November 9th they are in two different strip malls there are pencil shavings and dust on the salmon. A box of flaming pine cones next to the mixture of salmon cuts. A combination drink fries hamburger. The price will depend on which combination you want. I often go for the value choice. It is great to get a deal. You may be wondering what the box of flaming pine cones has to do with anything. You may be wondering about the salmon cuts and the dust and the pencil shavings. There's nothing to know. There's no hidden meeting. They aren't even in the same place as the combination. They aren't even in the same strip mall. They are in two different strip malls, four miles away from one another. There is no connection. There is no deeper meaning. There is no pattern. There is no wisdom. There's nothing to understand. It is just pencil shavings, dust, salmon, and flaming pine cones. All things considered, it is, has, and always will be a valued choice. This is this post in particular is my head's kind of spinning reading it because I think I think one thing that's happening, and I was worried about this from the beginning of starting this podcast was that I would become too concerned or I would be too aware of of my voice so as much as it's been a, a very much a good thing to um, read these posts back and to see how they've felt and to kind of grow them there's now when i sit down to write i think i have the this show in mind whereas before it didn't matter i would just write them put them out didn't have a difference so the question then is do i completely ignore try to just pretend like this doesn't happen and just try to stay in that completely organic kind of 
um, headspace where I don't worry about what may how they'll come together later or do I go forward with that let myself kind of work through it I mean is there a difference I think as I'm saying this out loud it's the same there's no one way or another it is what it is you just have to push forward through it and I, but I'm feeling a lot of discomfort in reading these posts out loud today all four of them I feel like I'm outside of my I'm outside of my zone and I'm it's all too um, self-aware these posts are feel very self-aware um, which is interesting and uh, let's see there are pencil shavings and dust on the salmon okay so we're imagining there's a, a salmon, a piece of salmon. And I think I'm, I imagine that as a cooked salmon, not as a, like a raw piece of salmon. I don't know why. There are pencil shavings and dust on this piece of salmon. A box of flaming pine cones next to the mixture of salmon cuts. So there are actually a lot of these salmons bunch of salmons all with the, they're basically marinating in the dust and the pencil shavings so first there's that's one image and then there's a box of flaming pine cones next to it good now it goes a combination drink fries hamburger so <laughs> what's so stupid i think as I was, when I was writing this post, I became fascinated with the realization that when we go to a fast food restaurant and we say there's different combos on the menu, I don't know if it ever occurred to me that in that context that when we say combo, one, two, three, whatever, it's saying combination. And that seemed very funny to me and very, uh, um, you know, worth going down the road with. A combination drink fries hamburger. The price will depend on which combination you want. I often go for the value choice. It's great to get a deal. You may be wondering what the box of flaming pine cones has to do with anything. You may be wondering about the salmon cuts and the dust and the pencil shavings. It's this talking in the second person, writing in the second person, which I've definitely done before, but in this, I think when I was writing this, I was imagining the recording and thinking about the audience. And that's what I mean, where it's like thinking about the audience as you're writing. I, I don't, I got to read this excerpt that I was talking about in the beginning from this book. I think it really speaks to it um, so let's I'm gonna put a pin in exactly that I'm gonna come back to it this idea of considering the how much we want to consider the audience at any given time we're writing or recording 
and thinking about doing a good job for the audience or doing a good job for simply your own sake always ping-ponging trying to have the best of both worlds and not leaning too far to one end or another and uh, and trying to have it be as natural as possible not thinking too much about not forgetting that there's an audience you want to communicate with an audience in some capacity and not spending too much time worrying about the audience I think this particular week I think I'm very much in audience mode not as much self mode I think that's what's going on here and uh, you may have picked it up from the moment I hit the record button today not to say that I'm you know the, the gleeful entertainer in fact it feels like the more disconnected I am to myself and considering the audience too much my energy level actually feels less feels like foggy when I'm in that that zone so you know if ever if ever a point for do it for you fuck the audience forever world that's that's uh that's a point there there's nothing to know there is no hidden meeting there aren't they aren't even in the same place as the combination so this whole salmon image from the beginning it's not even in the same it's, it's not in the same place as the burger and fries combo don't even don't even think that there's a connection this is what the post was is you know always i'm reading these posts and i'm trying to break them down find the connections try to understand the train of thought and this post in particular is me going i know you're going to read this later and you're going to try to connect everything (laughs) and i'm going to fuck that up for you now and that to me was funny and then when i read it back i'm remembering that now as i read it more closely and slowly but when I read it, I said, my head is spinning. I don't even understand what's going on. And I deliberately did this to myself. I'm, I'm, I'm sabotaging my own, um, my own process here for, uh, for the thrill of it. And now here we are. <laughs> there is no connection. There is no deeper meaning. There is no pattern. There is no wisdom. <laughs> basically i think this this post is me the writer telling me the person who records the podcast to fuck off and <laughs> leave me alone that's what this is there's nothing to understand it is just pencil shavings dust salmon and flaming pine cones all things considered it is has and always will be a valued choice. And as it said before in the post, I often go for the valued choice. It is great to get a deal. Good. Okay. Let's look at thinking about work, November 10th. When I was younger, 
I thought that work meant that something required an unprecedented amount of effort. But I don't know if that's it anymore. Pushing a limit, transcending a breaking point, is usually a fun thing to do, and it is enjoyable to exert effort. But I don't know if it's work. Work is the persistence of the mundane. That is the task of someone who works for a living, completing the same task over and over again. In a few years, I will reassess again, but for now, I hope that is reasonable enough. Now this post, I remember sitting for a while and feeling, um, I think the other issue is that my, my prose, my daily prose writing is going very well that I almost have less of a massive urge to, um, to write posts at the end of the day. I still completely do. And it's just the habit at this point. And, um, just like a given that that's what I do. But I know I was this week in particular, I was feeling very calm and very satiated from the work I was doing in the place I was at, which is rare. It's kind of a rare, rare thing. Um, but I wanted to, and then I, in my mind, I wanted to talk about what work meant. And I was thinking about doing it. It's like, oh, that's something I should talk about on the weekend on the show. But then I was like, well, why don't I just write about it here? And I was going back and forth being like, well, but then it's like, what's this is stealing the voice of the show and putting it into the writing voice. So it's almost the opposite of the last post where it was like the writing voice telling the the podcast voice to fuck off and now it's like the podcast voice has come and um almost taken over for for one here and uh and that's okay but it's just, i'm struggling with it or I'm, I'm growing into it or something uh, and that definitely seems to be the uh big point this week um so when i was younger i thought that work meant that something i thought that work meant that something required an unprecedented amount of effort so when you're working it means you're exerting a lot of effort that's always what what i thought of when i thought of hard work or oh i was working a lot of effort a lot of effort but there's certain jobs you've probably had where it's actually very boring and it's almost like they're paying you to do nothing in certain office jobs i've had certain standing around um you know in a store jobs uh on set jobs you just you gotta just do something really really boring and that's that's what work actually is for a lot of a lot of people and with this new teaching job well it's not really new anymore but at first it was a big thrill to learn how to teach it's about a year over a year ago now and it was just exciting and had to learn how to do it but 
after however many days I started to feel the work of it meaning the repetition of it and the living the same day and teaching the same thing for the however many like again again and again and it's not effort it's not like you're lifting 3,000 pounds it's the it's the doing it again and finding a way to, to to do it that that counts and I think writing that's when it really becomes work is the repetition of it the giant pits of inspiration and you know having really good exciting ideas is one thing but more so sitting down and doing it again 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 over time and feeling there's certain days where it's just it just is and that's the work of it when I look back more than anything so I think it's those posts in the beginning of the week it's like when you write about death and you've a never experienced death or really haven't been around it but we're very much um, inclined to talk about it because it's exciting it's a thrill but it's almost its own kind of addiction or its own kind of dopamine hit you know sex and death are the two big kind of you know to create drama and at any point in a tv show in a book those are the two subjects that's what stories are about for you know a lot of the time um and so we're inclined to orbit them even if they really have nothing to do with us and i wonder you know what business i really have in uh in those territories and maybe the more i mature as a writer the less i will concern myself with it um and and so when we think about those kind of cartoon images i threw out the beginning of the the show today guy running into the cactus with with his dandruff and um the guy with the the that gets the crab on his dick when he's in the the uh in the beach you know it's just cartoons and that's fine but you know how far do you, how far can, how many times can you do it um we'll find out so persistence of the mundane work is the persistence of the mundane i feel like that that feels really true um at this point thinking about work the uh one other thing i've been doing is taking the transcriptions and I think this explains a bit of this whole train of thought that I'm on as it's slowly kind of unpacking. I've been taking the transcriptions of past shows and 
reading them and basically taking out the trying to break them down and see the structure of these shows and seeing kind of what the more what are the parts I liked talking about and find interesting to look at again and what are the things that I found more boring to read so really looking for like the protein and the good stuff and treating those the transcripts of me talking in the podcast as a piece of writing and not editing them but just looking through and trying to assess and see um i can definitely see oh that's an interesting bit that's interesting but i almost want to take it and maybe write more about it but it's maybe flying a little too close to to the flame um in that become too self-conscious again that's the that's the danger but you know we'll see see where it goes um i think each episode ends up being about 10 to 15,000 words which is kind of funny you know because writing that amount that's probably about you know to get 10,000 good words can take months um, in my usual kind of prose writing and uh to kind of spit out that same amount in one of these sessions and then look at it and read it as I'm trying to like edit that and then edit these words that have really slaved over um, and tried to make super very perfect in the in my usual writing two very different processes but that 10,000 word 10 to 15,000 word kind of bite is the one that um, that I want to get really good at managing and uh, I think you know I've been talking about the upcoming short story book Herman's Jail and other stories a lot of them are floating around that mark some of them less for sure um which is good but they're either that or they're 10 to 15 actually Herman's Jail is like 30 so it's also different but trying to figure out like what's a manageable piece to edit what's a good kind of um size that way and the 10,000 words good the 1,000 words a day is good. If that's what I've been working on lately and enables me to kind of edit and write at the same time. And then there's the really small bite, which is the post. So it's kind of like, that's my small, medium, and large at the moment. And just trying to wrap my head around, you know, what, what does it feel like to say something in 100 words? which is the average post. And I'm really comfortable with that at this point. Um, what is it like to really say something and not just spit out jargon for the 1000 word mark? And that's my day to day. And then what does it feel like to spit out something meaningful at the 10,000 word mark? That's basically, that's what I'm trying to, um, those are like the weights that I'm 
currently lifting right now and trying to get better at as a whole. What is what kind of things can you say with each? What's kind of an appropriate amount of protein proportion? Usually in the smallest one it's like a a small joke, a weird image, um, a single feeling. Kind of get one in each, right? It all kind of amounts to one of those things and you know combinations of them, but you can just kind of get in that one punch when it works. And then if it doesn't work, it just didn't matter. It's gone. This Then the 1,000 word, I think you can kind of come to a conclusion, come to a realization in 1,000 words. You can kind of get, definitely can get lost in it in the same way I get lost in the, the posts. But, and then you can have small jokes here and there, but not as punchy not as appropriate i don't think to have it be so punchy as the posts are so it's a little more uh subtle right and the, you read it faster i think and it's just a bit more but a thousand words ramps you up enough to set out a, enough ingredients and come to a realization and then slightly resolve it i think that's what what makes sense to me and then the 10,000 word part you can I think really have those realizations but they need to amount to some something um, bigger in in some change, some actual change. The realizations don't necessarily lead to an actual change in behavior. So it's like you can realize, oh, if I keep eating potato chips every day, then I'm going to start gaining more weight than I want to. But that's not going to just break the habit immediately. You still have to like see it from a few angles and live it out before you come to a bigger conclusion rather than have a realization that it can elicit some change for better or for worse. That's, I think that makes, that's I think that feels correct to me. And so these are kind of the, the building blocks that I understand when it comes to writing. In, in screenwriting world, and I think, you know, most story structure worlds, we got beats, we have scenes, and we have acts. And it's probably just another way of looking at at that um, good yeah I'm, I'm happy with the, those ideas I'll uh, 
I think that might bring me a bit of peace when I'm working next week, actually. Unless it's totally over-intellectualizing things and it's completely bullshit, but... Um, but I, I don't mind that framework as a concept. It does work for me. Alright, the last post. This one's called The Guy Who Makes the Egg Salad. Irwin, the guy who makes the egg salad, was sitting on a milk crate. He was crying inconsolably. He didn't have to say why. We all knew it was because his cat ran away. It happens every few months. And every time it does, he just loses it. He still showed up for his shift and did his prep. Then he just broke down. After work, a bunch of us went with him to help him look for his cat. We searched everywhere, but we couldn't find him. And at around 10 p.m., we had to call it. At one point, Erwin told me that he'd rather be dead than be away from his cat. I knew from the way he said it that he wasn't lying. I hope his cat comes back sooner than later. I wanted to let you know what happened. This morning, when Irwin opened the kitchen, he saw that vat of egg salad was tipped over. He screamed fuck and kicked over the mop bucket. But then he saw some paw prints in the egg. It was the happiest moment of his entire life. There was his cat eating the egg salad. Everyone is really happy that things are okay. Erwin is making a new batch of egg salad now. It should be ready by the time we open. The guy who makes the egg salad. No further comment about this post, it's completely straightforward. I don't think there's any strangeness to work through. There's not any poetic um, entanglement. It's straightforward and it makes sense. And it's fun to, it feels defiant to write a happy ending. <laughs> what, what happened when I came home this day was I, as soon as I walked in the door I didn't see my cat I knew I was like where the hell is he I just knew it I knew he was, something was wrong so the search begins and the panic begins my emotions go nuts I feel so I don't know what the word is worried and sad and panicky and helpless that he's not there and that something might have happened to him where he ran away and he's lost it was raining out it was dark because we had daylight savings so now it gets dark earlier and I'm just and he was at the vet that day and he had all these shots 
and that you know he's going to be extra sleepy and lethargic and you never know how they'll react too right you're supposed to keep an eye on the, them as they uh, after they had their shots in case some weird happens some you know some extra factors to worry about I go upstairs not in any of the rooms main floor not there basement not there back upstairs main floor downstairs keep just keep going through looking at every spot over and over again and start you know my wife was out and my mom-in-law knows that he's not around and she can she knows i'm starting to panic she's trying to stay calm but she can she knows how fast i'll you know get into a sw switch over into that world and uh searching everywhere and there's this spot in the furnace room in the basement and i and i always worry about it it's usually the door's closed it's fine we don't let them in there but there's kind of a an opening behind the furnace that you can't access a cat could jump up there from the ground and then go on the other side but it would be very difficult to even get over there and look through the opening because the furnace is so angled in such a way it just would be really hard to get there and one time he was in there with me and he was he was kept jumping and trying to get in he wanted to know it was back there so bad but i i just grabbed him and you know he's like ripping up my biting my hand and scratching me he wants me to let him go so he <laughs> so you can check out what's on the other side so I'm just shaking treats and, you know, got all his best toys, just trying to get him to come back. But I don't hear him. And if he was trapped there, he would be meowing. Because he would. And he would come back because he can't stand it. If I have those treats and I have those toys, he would, he would come. But there's, it's just completely silent. And I look in every nook and cranny, but he's not, he's just not there. And then I get my jacket. I was just like, okay, I'm going out in the rain. I'm going to figure out, I'm going to find him. I'm going to start going around the streets and seeing if I can find him. Maybe he's in the neighbor's yard, whatever. And, uh, and then my wife comes home and I show her, I go back and we're like, let's look one more time, whatever. I'm also going in circles, so I'm not, nothing, I don't really make sense. My actions are totally tangled with the, uh, the panic. And then I'm back in the furnace room again and I'm just standing there because I just know he's there. And then I hear, I thought someone was pushing a suitcase down the stairs, which were, which are also on top of the, I heard this loud crashing. Those are, it's on top of the furnace room, the staircase. Like, I thought my wife maybe was bringing something downstairs, like the laundry or something. 
And then from the ceiling, not from that hole I was talking about, from, from the ceiling, this puff of dust just explodes and falls onto me. And there he is standing on top of me on the light fixture. And I see there's a tiny hole or maybe it's an it's an opening in the ceiling that we'd never even noticed before that he climbed above the lights and went in there and must have been hanging out there for who knows how long and who knows what he saw and uh and i and i finally got him down well he wanted me he was i think he was pretty freaked out and he was kind of very receptive to me taking him off of the the shelf when he finally climbed onto it and I took him down and he was okay but very dusty and then everything's all right I go back I sit in my office and then the emotions just like you know it's a lot and I calmed down after a little while and then I wrote the story of Irwin the guy who makes the egg salad and he lost his cat but then the cat arrived and everything was okay and that's how it came out for whatever reason why didn't I just write the story that I explained, the reality of it? Why did I need to make the fictional version of it? I don't know. I don't know why. But I think that's a good transition into reading these couple excerpts that I flagged when I was reading the book that I, I finished reading this book today. This is called The Counter Life by Philip Roth. And it was written in the 80s. And exactly was written in 1986. Came out. And there were two parts that I just saw and immediately I knew I needed to read them. So my little edition, this is on page 293, and that's close to the end of, actually it's closer to the beginning, oh, actually it's on, it's at the, very close to the beginning of the fifth um, part of the book. So, let me read this. By conventional standards, Rhea and I must certainly have seemed. Because of the dissimilar backgrounds and the difference in age, to be a strangely incongruous couple. Whenever our union seemed incongruous, even to me, I wondered if it wasn't a mutual taste of incongruity for assimilating a slightly untenable arrangement, a shared inclination, 
for the sort of unlikeliness that doesn't, however, topple into absurdity, that accounted for underlying harmony. It was still beguiling for people raised in such alien circumstances to discover in themselves interests so strikingly similar, and of course, the differences continued to be pretty exhilarating too. Maria was keen, for instance, to pin my professional seriousness to my class origins. This artistic dedication of yours is slightly provincial, you know. It's far more metropolitan to have a slightly anarchic, anarchic view of life. Yours only seems anarchic and isn't at all. About standards, you're something of a hick. Thinking things matter. It's the hicks who think things matter, who seem to get things done. Like books written, yes, she said. That is so. That's why there are so few upper-class artists and writers. They haven't got the seriousness, or the standards, or the irritation, or the ire. And the values? Well, she said. We certainly haven't got that. That really is over the top. One used to expect the upper classes at least to pay for it all, but they won't even do that anymore. On that score, I was a renegade, at least as a child. I'm over it now, but when I was little, I used terribly to want to be remembered after my death for something I had achieved. I wanted to be remembered, I said, before my death. Well, that is also important. Maria said, in fact, slightly more important, slightly provincial, unsophisticated, and hickish, but I must say, attractive in you, the famous Jewish intensity, counterbalanced in you by the famous English insouciance, and that, she said, is a gentle way of describing my fear of failure. So that's one section. And this, this book in particular talks a lot about fiction writing. And it has this meta component to it. So that's very... That's very much there, but for for some reason, this particular pack part stood out to me in maybe the overthinking and kind of the class difference and thinking that this actually was the way things is the way things were, and maybe the difference between them. I think the way that at the end it talks about she says is it it's a gentle way of describing my fear of failure that for some reason that really hit and that maybe it's the insecurity of wanting to having an impulse to do something like right and feeling like you weren't maybe born in the right circumstance 
and that that then dictates the fate of it and also having to admit or not admit that you want to be remembered in your life or after your life the legacy of it and and just trying to i guess express that this felt that felt very specific to me it's also very interesting having never read someone else's work on the in this form before on the show it's uh, that was really uh that was a new thing um So that was that one part. I think more specifically, let me go to the second excerpt that I selected here. Now this one's very much at the end of that chapter and very close to the end of the book. If not, it's in like the last, they write some letters to each other, this Maria and Nathan. And uh, there's a bunch of letters going back and forth. And this is from the very last letter that he writes to her. Um, it's not the entire letter. It's just the beginning. My, my Maria. When Balzac died, he called out for his characters from his deathbed. Do we have to wait for that terrible hour? Besides, you are not merely a character or even a character but the real living tissue of my life. I understand the terror of being tyrannically suppressed, but don't you see how it's led to excess, excesses of imagination that are yours and not mine? I suppose it can be said that I do something, sometimes desire or even require a certain role to be rather clearly played than other people that other people aren't always interested enough to want to perform. I can only say in my defense that I ask no less of myself. Being Zuckerman is one long performance and the very opposite of what is thought of being, of as being oneself. In fact, those who most seem to be themselves appear to me people impersonating what they think they might like to be, believe they ought to be, or wish to be taken to be by whoever is setting standards. So in earnest are they that they don't even recognize that being in earnest is the act. For certain self-aware people, however, this is not possible. To imagine themselves being themselves, living their own real authentic or genuine life has for them all the aspects of a hallucination. I realize that what I am describing, people divided in themselves, is said to characterize mental illness and is the absolute opposite of our idea of emotional integration. The whole Western idea of mental health runs in precisely the opposite direction. What is desirable is, is congru congruity, congruity 
between your self-consciousness and your natural being. But there are those whose sanity flows from the conscious separation of those two things. If there even is a natural being, an irreductible self, it is rather small, I think, and may even be the root of all impersonation. The natural being may be the skill itself, the innate capacity to impersonate. I'm talking about recognizing that one is acutely a performer, rather than swallowing whole the guise of naturalness and pretending that it isn't a performance, but you. There is no you, Maria, any more than there is a me. There is only this way that we have established over the months of performing together and what it and what it is congruent with isn't ourselves but past performances we're has-beens at heart routinely trotting out the old old act what is the role i demand of you i couldn't describe it but i don't have to you're such a great intuitive actress you do it almost with no direction at all an extraordinarily controlled and seductive performance. Is it a role that's foreign to you? Only if you wish to pretend that it is. It's all impersonation. In the absence of a self, one impersonates selves, and after a while impersonates best the self that bets gets one through. If you were to tell me that there are people like the man upstairs to whom you now threaten to turn yourself in, who actually do have a strong sense of themselves, I would have to tell you that they are only impersonating people with a strong sense of themselves, to which you could correctly reply that since there is no way of proving whether I'm right or not, this is a circular argument from which there is no escape. All I can tell you with certainty is that I, for one, have no self, and that I am unwilling or unable to perpetrate upon myself the joke of a self. It certainly does strike me as a joke about myself. What I have instead is a variety of impersonations I can do, and not only of myself, a troop of players that I have internalized, a permanent company of actors that I can call upon when self is required an ever-evolving stock of pieces and parts that forms my repertoire. But I certainly have no self independent of my imposturing artistic efforts to have one, nor would I want one. I am a theater and nothing more than a theater. And let's call it there. So that particular page and a half I feel like likely is the thesis of the whole book I feel like it all kind of came together there um, so the, that really stood out to me and it, it also as far as trying to write authentically trying to act authentically trying to close the gap between the two of those things and thinking that that will amount to becoming yourself 
and being true to yourself and being an authentic person and that being the the pursuit of of all of this which i think i've said pretty clearly and repeated on this podcast in previous weeks and i still believe that to be true but he said what he says that i think stands out to me more than anything i mean i think it's right here I realize that what I'm describing, people divided in themselves, is said to characterize mental illness and is the absolute opposite of our idea of emotional emotional integration. So basically, if you're too separated from those two things, you're mentally ill. The whole Western idea of mental health runs in precisely the opposite direction. What is desirable is congruity, congruity, between your self-conscious and your natural being. But there are those whose sanity flows. This is, this is the line. This is the line. There are those whose sanity flows from the conscious separation of those two things. That, that to me is something to really consider and really makes a case for the writing of fiction, the almost obsession with the the abstract self self subconscious ideas, and then the voice, the podcast voice of what is meant to be reality, but. It's also difficult to be exactly who you are when you know it's recording for an audience. And I think this author, Philip Roth, has at this point had so much experience writing books and having many, many people read them and a lot of success at this point in his career that from the outside I would look at him as someone who figured all that stuff out at this point and who would know and this is what he's saying if there even is a natural being an irreductible self it is rather small I think and may even be the root of all impersonation the natural being may be the skill itself the innate capacity to to impersonate i'm talking about recognizing that one is acutely a performer rather than swallowing whole the guise of naturalness and pretending that it isn't a performance but you that's from the counter life by philip roth no, I think that says that says it all, and um, I'm glad to have read it here and tried that out, reading someone else's work and letting it sink in a bit. And then there was one more thing, you know. After I was just kind of 
on the internet reading a couple articles about the book and I came across one that I wanted to read um, that was written this is an interview from New York Magazine and it's with an author named Martin Amis who I've never read but he talks about this book and such are the wonders of the internet I was able to find I came across it from searching for you know articles about this book and so I found this and let's see where's the good way to start I just wanted to read a couple small excerpt from here okay it seems like you've never really been an avant-gardist as a reader or as a writer either always more interested in extending or editing the tradition rather than overthrowing it that's the interviewer said that and then he goes well money is postmodernist. money is the name of one of his books money is postmodernist, really isn't it in that there's the author in there as a minor character. What I felt I was doing there was seeing whether there was comic possibilities in postmodernism. To show how a novel is made while you're writing a novel isn't an uninteresting idea. And there are one or two masterpieces of postmodern fiction, like Philip Roth's The Counterlife, a really impressively intricate book the interviewer says but like you he kind of moved past metafiction and he responds well it didn't lead anywhere postmodernism had i think tremendous predictive power it predicted how the world was going to be now even a politician will talk about how am i going to spin this it's all knowing and wised up and confessed confessedly wised up in a way that it didn't used to be before but as a genre, it was naturally kind of disappearing up its own ass. And now we're back. We're not post-postmodern, we're just later modern. All that experimentation in fiction is dead for another set of reasons. Like PC ideology, experimentation is a sort of luxury item. When times get you hard, you won't hear anything about that kind of supersensitivity to people taking offense. And I think what has happened in fiction is that fiction has responded to the fact that the rate of history has accelerated in this last generation and will continue to accelerate with more sort of light speed kind of communications. Those huge leisurely digressive essayistic meditative novels of the post-war era, some of which were on the bestseller list for months, don't have an audience anymore. Those are some of the novels that you've always cited as most important to you. They're magnificent, but you don't think there's a future for them. No, I think they're extinct. No one is writing that kind of novel now. Well, your near namesake, David Foster Wallace, that post-humanus one looks sort of Joycean and huge and very left field. But no, most novelists, I think, are much more aware 
than they used to be of the need for forward motion, for propulsion in a novel. Novelists are people too, and they're responding to this just as the reader is. There's a very good poem by Auden called The Novelist, a sonnet in fact. It begins by talking about the poet, encased in talent like a uniform, they can dash forward like hussars. And it comes to the novelist. Your talent is very different. You must submit yourself to all human boredom. With the just, be just with the filthy, filthy too. It's a much more promiscuous and every mannish form. And those novels we've just talked about, the long-headed wise sort of Babel novels, where you're just sort of sounding off about this and that. I like those novels, but that is too much like the voice of a poem, not the novelist. I'm not interested in making a diagnostic novel. I'm 100% committed in fiction to the pleasure principle. That's what fiction is and should be. English interviewers have said about Lionel Asbo, it's written with great disgust. Absolutely not. Affection and admiration. You couldn't write a novel out of disgust. It sounds schmaltzy to say, but fiction has much more to do with love than people admit or acknowledge. The novelist has to not only look, not only love his characters, which you do without even thinking about it, just as you love your children but also to love the reader. And that's why I mean by the pressure principle. The difference between a Nabokov, who in almost all his novels, 19 novels, gives you his best chair and his best wine and his best conversation. Compare that to Joyce, who when you arrive at his house is nowhere to be found. And then you stumble upon him making some disgusting drink of peat and dandelion in the kitchen. He doesn't really care about you. Henry James ended up that way. They fall out of love with the reader, and the writing becomes a little distant. The interviewer says, You're still interested in pleasing the reader. And then he says, You can't be up the reader's ass, as many a writer I think is cute as hell, ingratiating as hell, but that's not loving the reader in the right way. That's toadying the reader to the reader. When I talk about the pleasure principle, I don't say there's only one kind of pleasure. There are many kinds of pleasure. Some pleasure is different. It should be for the reader as well as the writer, but it has to be a pleasure. And that was in a 2012 interview. So the combination of those thoughts, I think uh, they were were pretty interesting to me and I think speak to a lot of the different things um, that I've been talking about in the previous episodes of of this podcast and um, maybe you found that interesting as well. I believe that's all for today's show thank you for for being here as usual 
um, greatly appreciated and and um, otherwise we'll see you again next week on the Earwig Review.